please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 14 as we continue to look at Paul's argument against idolatry and the great dangers of it. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, on Wednesday nights, we've had the privilege of studying the life of Elijah and Certainly a, a powerful example of a prophet who spoke the word of God. And you know, probably our favorite story or most remembered story is the fire of God that comes down on Mount Carmel in a, in a powerful, impre- impressive display of God's might. He burns up the sacrifice, defeats the prophets of Baal. Elijah you know, kills uh, 450 at least, maybe as many as 800 prophets. And the people cry out, maybe most impressively, the people fall on their knees and they cry, the Lord, he is God. They've been worshiping Baal and it seems like they've turned back to the Lord. And So for one glorious day, there's revival from that wonderful fire falling. But we know the day after that, it was a one-day revival. Literally, Elijah, rain, the rain falls, the rain comes. Elijah seems, you know, he's delighted. He, he goes in front of Ahab's chariot to proclaim God as they go back into Jezreel, and then Jezebel steps in, right? She reverts, she, you know, she's the queen, remember, and so she kind of brings things back under control. She points the people back to Baal worship, and they immediately snap back into the things they've been doing before. She calls Elijah out and says, I'm going to make you like one of the prophets you just killed uh, by tomorrow at the same time. So Elijah runs into the wilderness. So from this one-day revival, this amazing power of God demonstrated, all of a sudden it seems like God is not going to work. God's revival has not come. That mighty act of God was not responded to properly. Well, this is instructive because as Elijah runs out into the wilderness all by himself, God first ministers to him. You might remember he, he lies down under a juniper tree and says, God, just kill me. I'm not better than my fathers. I didn't bring revival. It didn't happen. I thought it was going to come. That was my goal. I wanted the people to turn back to you. And even your impressive, powerful display of fire didn't turn them back. So he says, you can, you can just kill me, God. But God does not. What God does instead is he ministers faithfully to Elijah, then takes him to the mountain. And when he takes him to the mountain, he's going to instruct him. So this is how God often works. He, he comforts and encourages. He builds us up. You know, Elijah, with, he gives him food and drink. And yet then also he confronts him theologically. He, he comes and he says, Elijah, you don't understand what I'm really doing. And so you might remember that Elijah's in the cave, maybe even the same place that M- Moses received the, the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb. And, and God says, look, I'm going to be coming by. And so Elijah goes out of the cave and there's this whirlwind that comes by, this massive, you know, maybe a tornado kind of wind, and yet God's not in that. And then there's a, a, a fire that comes. Remember, God had been in the fire just a couple of days ago, and yet God was not in the fire. And so it was in none of the, you know, rocks are crashed against the, against the canyon walls, and yet God's not in any of those things. So it's like Elijah turns around, he goes back into the cave, and then he hears this gentle blowing. Not a voice, not an internal, still, small voice. It's the most misinterpreted passage, I think, in all of Scripture. He hears a wind, but it's gentle, and he's like, he's curious. He's like, well, it's not some great manifestation. And he goes out, and then God speaks to him. He says, Elijah, essentially, to paraphrase that a bit, I'm not always in the big things. I'm not, you know, in the big, powerful manifestations. God can do that, and he does. He'd just done it. But now what I want you to do, Elijah, is just remain faithful. I'm going to speak my word to you. You're going to continue to speak the word of God. And instead of the revival coming through this mighty, powerful act, revival is going to come through you speaking the word and God bringing judgment upon those who don't obey it. There's going to be much more slow work of God using the word of God preached to then bring, and, and the disobedience to that that would bring judgment, and God will ultimately bring his people back to himself. And you remember, he tells Elijah, look, I'm going to keep 7,000 who, who aren't going to bend the knee, 
but it's not going to be the powerful, impressive work you wanted. I think this is instructive for us purposely because it is God's most common work, his most often work, to work as it were quietly. Not, it's not that it's not supernatural and powerful as he changes people's lives, but it's through his word. And those are the manifestations that God uses, even Old Testament. Those are the majority of manifestations that God uses. And this helps us. It's, it's important. It reminds us that we need to read our Bibles. We need to read them carefully. We need to draw proper truth, proper interpretation from the pages of Scripture because that's how God works. He transforms us through the principles of the Word, not in mighty shows, not in mighty external acts of power. He changes us in this way. And so we want to read carefully. And really what the Apostle Paul is doing with the Corinthians is he's pointing them back to the Old Testament to say, look, you guys are, are dabbling with idolatry. You're, you're about to, to be in a huge danger zone as God will bring his judgment upon you. So read your Old Testament, but don't just read it as we'll see. Be changed. We don't just read to read. We read to change as we will see. So it says, look, you need to look at those examples and you need to change your life. Certainly we understand it's the power of the Spirit of God that enables that, but we work as it were to change. Our minds and wills and affections are established to change. So again, we need to be reminded that the God of the Old Testament is not different. He's the same as the God of the New Testament. We need to understand him then as we read his word more comprehensively. We need to read our Bibles more carefully, search our lives more deeply, acknowledge our sinful tendencies more openly, separate from our culture more intentionally, and love our God more passionately. What we'll see then is this morning is that God is a just, loving, and righteous God who must and does bring judgment and discipline on his children who violate his holy standards. Thus, we must humbly examine our lives and lay aside any sin in which we are entangled. God is a just, loving, and righteous God who must and does bring judgment and discipline on his children who violate his holy standards. Thus, we must humbly examine our lives and lay aside any sin in which we are entangled. God holds his chosen people accountable for their sin. Now, again this morning, we're going to be talking about idolatry, putting away those things in our lives which rise to the level of, com- of competition with God, lusts in our hearts, desires in our hearts. And as we do so, we want to be reminded again of how the Apostle Paul is using the Old Testament because so many times as you're you know, reading your blogs and watching your videos and reading your books, there is a, a misunderstanding of how the Old Testament is to be used. And if we misunderstand how to use it, then we will misunderstand theology and we will then misunderstand how to live because theology is always to be related to action. If we know something and don't put it into practice then we fail to know it properly. And if we know something wrongly, we will put it into practice inappropriately. So that's why I've been belaboring, taking time to discuss how the Apostle Paul uses the Old Testament because it's important for us. We have both Testaments. We need to know what to do. But also because as as a pastor, as the pastors of the church, the elders, we want to make sure that we are giving you instruction as to how to use the whole Bible because you're getting that instruction from somewhere, right? And too often it's on the internet, it's from other pastors, and we're like, we'd, we'd like to provide our instruction on this so that you can know how, where the church stands, where the leaders stand as to how we interpret Old and New Testaments so that as we challenge you to walk with God, you'll know where all that's coming from. So it's why I'm taking some time to do this. So again, just to remind you of, of because what Paul's been doing is he's been really taking the blessings that were given to Old Testament Israel and relating them to blessings that the church had because he's going to take the warnings to Old Testament Israel, and relate them to what the church had. So first, we were talking about the, the blessings, this idea of like being baptized into Moses and uh, through the cloud and through the sea. And we saw that as the Israelites' baptism into Moses was symbolized in being led through the cloud and passing through the sea, so our baptism into Christ is symbolized through our immersion into water. But they're not the same thing. There was not the church in the Old Testament. Paul is not treating the church, not saying God treated the church in the exact same way spiritually that he treated Israel. They were under a different covenant or under a new covenant. And so they were baptized into Moses relating to God through Moses and the law and the leadership that Moses brings. Even, and yet, and yet, Christ was still the one bringing those blessings. For us, Christ is the one bringing the blessings, but we are relating to God through the new covenant as Christ has now come and died, been buried and risen again. Similarly, and it really, Paul is doing this fascinatingly through the two ordinances that he's given to the church. Those ordinances that we sometimes tend to kind of downplay a bit, even that idea of baptism, it's, it's an important symbol because it represents our union, our identification with God, and therefore our separation from the world, what God has done and what Christ is now doing in our hearts. Guys, we have a baptism tonight. You need to be back. You need to see, you need to practice with us or participate with us in this ordinance. It's one person being baptized, but we're all participating as it were. 
we're recognizing that this is a symbol of our own identification with Christ. We're all together in one body. Yes, nothing happens in the waters. It's not a vacation, but you don't come to see a show. You don't come to see some impressive event. You come to see a true symbol of what God has actually done, the amazing things that he's done. Don't miss it. It's what we do as a church. That's why we have ordinances. There's only two. And we, we perform those or we go through those ordinances because of what they represent. And this is what the pattern was set for us in the Old Testament. Now, the ordinances are the same, but there's a picture to carry over. Then communion is the next one he uses. And he says, Israelites' communion with God was symbolized through the supernatural provision of food and water. Remember the spiritual food and drink? Real food and drink, but provided supernaturally. And that those were actually provided by Christ. So our communion with God in the New Testament is symbolized by our partaking of bread and drink at the Lord's Supper. There's nothing, again, efficacious. There's nothing mystical about the elements themselves. They don't change and they don't change us. But there's an important representation. It's a symbol of the work that God does in us, that he did because of the sacrifice of Christ, that he can now forgive us for our sins, clothe us with his righteousness, and that that in an ongoing way gives us true communion with God. Picture it again in the Old Testament. Real work, God communing with his people through those external symbols, communicating, communing with us now directly through Christ, but with external symbols that give us that picture. Vital then that we participate in those ordinances with a proper understanding of God and with a proper pursuit of God. Those who are getting baptized are proclaiming, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I, I want to be part of the church of Jesus, and I'm living for him. Those, when we come to communion, we're saying, we love Jesus, we recognize his sacrifice, we're living for him, we're pursuing the life, the holiness that God has for us. You can't partake of either ordinance and be pursuing sin on the side, as it were, refusing to repent and confess. That's the picture of what Israel tried to do. They tried, as it were, to be God's chosen people. They were his chosen people with all that identification, and yet they said, we can continue to sin and we'll be okay. And God's, God says, Paul says, no, you won't. You, even as God's chosen people, you cannot sin. The third thing that we were learning is that as Christ was the active agent of blessing Israel in the Old Testament, and externally, he was the one leading them on the pillar of cloud, providing the spiritual food and water. Christ, as the rock, was not an allegory. It was an actual presence of Christ bringing the water out of the rock as the third, second person of the Trinity was ministering to Israel. Well, there's certainly continuity there. Christ is ministering to us now, but not through external means of spiritual food and spiritual drink, but again, directly because he's died been buried, risen and ascended, and sent the Spirit of God to mediate him to us. So New Testament-wise, we then have that indwelling, which they did not have. He dwelt with Israel in the Old Testament, in us in the New, Christ doing the work in different form. That's how we teach both the continuity, the things that are the same from Israel to the church, and different, things that are different. And when we get those things wrong, we end up acting wrongly, and so we have to be careful. So we keep them distinct where they need to be distinct. Israel and the church has worked there, as Paul does, and yet we use them properly as examples and we understand the work of God in both Testaments and the ways that they fit together. Again, this becomes so important for us so that we might be able to, to partake together as a church in proper interpretation of Scripture. Now again, we have, we have classes where we teach this more deeply, right? So we're doing our Shepherd's Institute and our Ladies Bible Institute. I think we've got 43 guys and 43 ladies in those. I mean, that's, that's a stunning amount of people. It's a two-year program. There's a lot to do. But we don't just want to teach you there. We want to teach you here as well, building on these principles, because how you interpret Scripture matters. It has an outflow in your life, as we will see and as you already know. Now, with that review in mind, where we've been, now Paul's going to turn the corner, right? He's talked about their blessings. That was necessary. And that those blessings are similar. They're a picture of, analogous to the blessings we have, right? In one sense, ours are even greater because now Christ has come to dwell with us. But nonetheless, great blessings both places. Now he's going to turn the corner to give the reason why it's important to retain our appreciation of those blessings because if we don't, then we might turn to idolatry as Israel did. Right, so after reminding the people of the blessings, Paul now shows how Israel abused those blessings by turning to idolatry, immorality, testing, and grumbling in the wilderness. We will then enter into Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians to learn from Israel's bad example as we consider his challenge to beware God's judgment, comprehend God's purposes, and avoid Israel's sin. And we'll only get a little ways into the passage today, or the rest of it, but I, th I think we'll, we'll work our way carefully towards these dire warnings, which is vital for us. So chapter 5, or verse 5, chapter 10, let's drop your eyes to the text. First, 
Paul reminds them to beware of God's judgment. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Well, the nevertheless, all right, reveals that something, a change is coming, a contrast. All these blessings, this, this baptism into Moses, this uh, identification and communion with God through the personal work of Jesus Christ, but in spite of that, nevertheless, something was true. With most of them, God was not well pleased. So this, this stuns us, right? So this is beware of God's judgment. God was not pleased with most of them. You're like, how can that be? They were his chosen ethnic people. He certainly was pleased with them to choose them, right? That's absolutely true. He set his blessing upon them. He set his pleasure upon them to choose them as his people. But do not mistake God's overall pleasure in choosing a people for his overlooking of their sin. And the same thing happens in the New Testament. God has chosen his people. We put faith and trust in Christ. He's drawn us to that. We're his believing people. He's placed his love and his his pleasure upon us. But that does not mean he is pleased when we sin or that he won't deal with it. Don't mistake those two kinds of pleasures. It's really important. God will never cease to love you in Christ. He never ceased to care and still cares for his ethnic people. But that does not mean he overlooks their sin and that he does not judge it. That will not save you. Being chosen of God will not save you from the disciplining hand of God. That is Paul's point. And so we need to be aware of this. God was not pleased. Although in one sense he was, they remained his chosen people. And say, you're no longer my chosen ethnic people. He's never cast them off and he never will. But that does not mean he overlooked their sin and he judged them even as his chosen people. That's strong medicine and not something that we like to talk about much. Or just in discontinuity. Oh, he just did that to Israel. He can't do that to believers because we're the New Testament church and we're in Christ. Yes, he can. Yes, he will. Yes, he does. That is Paul's point. Don't have too much discontinuity. There's some things that are the same, and that's what Paul is saying. So God was not pleased with most of them. I mean, that's that's stunning. Not most. There's about two million of them. With most of them, he was not well pleased. Most disobeyed him at some point in the wilderness. And then, number two, beware of God's judgment because God killed most of them. Now, I want to be really careful here. I use those words carefully because Scripture uses them. And it's not something that we would really want to teach on much, that God would kill someone. But I want to remind you, please hear me carefully, that at the end of time, when the world stands before him, unbelievers stand before God in judgment, what they go away into is what? Death. He kills them. Please understand that this is God. And we don't want to talk about God that way. And anything that has to do with death, why, well, you know, God couldn't do that. And, and, and you know, we, can't, we can't have anything that even looks like death. God said that the wages of sin was death. We, we, like, we, we like to play patty cake. Like God couldn't do that or God won't do that. Or how could God do that? He told you that was true. He's the just and holy God. Sin against him is an infinite offense. We forget that. We, we wanna, the, our culture wants to move that out of our, our, our purview. And so does the evangelical church to too great a degree. The picture of what God did in the Old Testament was he actually brought judgment on death upon his own people because of their disobedience. That shows you... Considering how much God was pleased with Israel and is pleased with his chosen people, it shows you how much he hates sin. You have to hold those both in tension. God killed them. It says, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That's a weak translation. ESV doesn't get any any better. It says, overthrown in the wilderness. I mean, what, thrown over cliffs? the, The NIV actually gets this best. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. That's the picture and that's the word. It's a scattering is it's a visceral picture of as the Israelites traveled for 38 years and nine months in the desert, there, were tra- there was a trail of bodies coming behind them, and it was God that did that. Now, again, I don't say that lightly. Those are real people dying, real people suffering, being bitten by serpents and slain by those who were trying to stop them from their evil behavior. Guys, this is real stuff. It's visceral, it's strong, but it's real, and that's the warning that we need to take care of. It's a real thing that happened in the Old Testament. It's not just a picture. It's real things that happened in the New Testament. It's not just analogies and types and, and examples. They were laid low in the wilderness. This refers, of course, to the, the wilderness wandering in which God was, was essentially wiping out an entire generation. Turn to Numbers 14. So swipe in your Bibles or turn on the little sound of the pages going, whatever it takes. Numbers 14. <clears throat> so you know the 
picture here, that God has promised them to go into the promised land, and they have reached the shores of the Jordan River where they could go in. They sent, Moses sends 12 spies in. Ten of the spies come back and say, the walls are, are big, the people are strong, the armies are huge, we can't win. Now, this is just after God has defeated the strongest nation on earth single-handedly. He just defeated Egypt. In fact, you can probably see the chariot wheels floating in the Red Sea, even as these spies are saying, God can't defeat these nations much weaker nations than Egypt, and that God did by himself without their help. And they come back and say, we can't do that. Can't go in. Two come back and say, yes, yes, we can. Joshua and Caleb, remember, God will deliver us. Believe God is what they say, but the Israelites do not. And they say, we're going back to Egypt. It's a revolt. Well, God ends the revolt. He says, no, actually, you're not going back to Egypt. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into the wilderness for 38 years and nine months. They spent some time at Sinai for the total 40-year period. And he says this to them as he brings that judgment. Verse 28. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. That is, we'll perish if we go in. He's saying, no, actually, you're going to perish even though you don't go in. I'm going to do that thing you said was going to happen. Well, I'm going to do it, not them. He says, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. You see where Paul is drawing the analogy? Right, your body's scattered across the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10. He's drawing it straight from here. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Certainly you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, he says it again, verse 32, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Everyone, every man over the age of 20. But I think we need to understand that in light of the men really being representative of their families. Clearly in the wilderness wandering, men and women died. It wasn't only men that died. Whole families were swallowed up. Right? Families were killed as the, the serpents bit them. Even some children died. This was not a guarantee that no children would die that entire time. Simply that a generation of those under 20 would survive and essentially the generation of everybody over 20 would die. That's, that's the promise. The men are the representative. They are the ones that should have been faithful. They, they represent the people in the nation. They were unfaithful. And that stretches out then to the rest of the nation. So when God speaks of the men over 20, he's talking about really destroying an entire generation. Simon Kistemacher says this. That's about uh, taking the total number of men who are 20 years older. We're given that number in Numbers chapter 1. That's why it's called Numbers. 603,550. Assuming that there were an equal number of women, we divide the total, it's about 1,207,100. We divide that by the 38 years that Israel spent in the desert, that's 90 deaths a day. 90 deaths a day. They're literally walking through the wilderness with bodies strewn everywhere. Because that's sobering. As I said, I'm not, I'm not talking about delighting in that. I'm simply telling you that's real. And the nature of God's judgment is such that he would do that to his own chosen people. Away with this God is a mean God because he judges other people, right? So the Israelites were going to go into the land and, and, and destroy the nations there because they were sinful. Well, God's an equal opportunity judge, and he judges his own people first. And he doesn't just carry out judgment on others. An entire generation dies. And they die, as it turns out, through all their individual acts of unholiness, mostly. So it isn't just that God just you know, starts randomly killing people as they're walking through. They disobey him all the way through. And at each one of those times, God brings judgment and more die all along the way. And so we're going to see four of those instances as we work our way through in the next couple of weeks. Four places where they sinned and God judged them by killing as he scatters their bodies throughout. This idea of God killing his people is certainly... It's, it's warranted here as their corpses are strewn, but it's stated directly in Psalm 78, 34, where this incident is reviewed. It says, when he killed them, they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. Guys, God is, again, he's a just and holy God. He doesn't overlook the temporal sins of his people, even when he had chosen them in the bigger picture forever as his chosen ethnic race. And he doesn't overlook ours as well. That's the direct tie. It is important, even considering this Old Testament example, to understand that those who died in the wilderness and did not enter the promised land included many who were true believers in God. Because some people make a distinction. Well, only those that didn't really believe in God, the Israelites who were not really Israelites, as it were. They make a distinction between a spiritual and a physical Israel. Paul makes no such distinction. They're just all viewed as God's chosen people. 
And even those who believed in God, we would call them true Old Testament believers, right? There's only one way of salvation, Old and New Testament, faith in God. And New Testament comes through the sacrifice, person, and work of Christ, which hadn't happened yet in the Old. So belief in God and his word, always been the way of salvation. So there were real Old Testament believers wandering around in the wilderness, and most of them died. How do I know that? Because Moses died. He did not go into the promised land. Certainly Moses was a true believer in God. And even he did not go in because of his sinful behavior. Even Moses did not have his sins overlooked, even though he was a true, full believer in God. He was saved, as it were. And yet God still judged his sin. It's a powerful, visceral picture. The point that Paul is making is that all Israelites are viewed as God's chosen people in this illustration. And so it carries over to the church where God looks upon the church and, yes, true believers are judged for their sin as God looks upon us as his spiritual chosen people. MacArthur says it this way, many of the disqualified Israelites, and he uses that word because Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, uh, even Paul says, look, I could be disqualified, which we said doesn't refer to as losing his salvation, but as being useless for God because he doesn't control, because if he wouldn't control his body and sin through idolatry or immorality or grumbling or testing, even he could be set aside, ministry done, useless to God, as happened with the Israelites. So uh, MacArthur says, many of the disqualified Israelites were believers who became unfit for God's service. They became what Paul elsewhere refers to as vessels of dishonor. That's a church term he uses in 2 Timothy 2. They didn't pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. They did not become vessels that were sanctified, useful to the master. They were scattered about the wilderness as potsherds, pieces of broken vessels that were no longer useful. We have to understand that even as Christians truly saved by God and indwelt by the Spirit of God, that we can sin in ways that remove us from suitable service in the church. If we do not repent in ongoing ways, we become disqualified. We become vessels that are not worthy for service. We don't lose our salvation. We simply become useless in the church with ongoing sin, and that ought to be chilling, is chilling to the true believer. No true believer says, well, hey, I'm not going to lose my salvation, so if I go ahead and sin and God puts his disciplining hand upon me, that's cool. No true believer says that. Unfortunately, true believers do that, and that's the problem. That's what Paul is warning against. Lest you think that, that it's like um, I'm going too far with the idea that God would kill believers. Okay, he killed Old Testament, you know, Israel, Israelite, but we're so different, right? That discontinuity, we're not Israel, we're the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. This is right in context. Paul will move into the context of communion and not being able to do, uh, be involved in idolatry and then go to communion. And then he'll broaden it out to say, you can't be involved in willful sinning and then say, I'm communing with God through the elements in the Lord's Supper. It says, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For you eats and drinks, drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. What kind of judgment? For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Sickness that God brings, clearly God's judgment upon those who partake wrongly of the visible elements because they are pictures of communing with God and they're dishonoring that, set, that communion. It says, and some sleep. That's believers dying. This is directly in the context. It is the context. Paul's saying, look, Corinthians, there's, you're already dying. There's people among you. He says, many are sick, many sleep, because you are inappropriately taking communion. You are in idolatry and immorality, testing and grumbling, then going and saying, I'm going to go ahead and commune with God. God says, I will not have it. And he's actually killing some in the church. What good shepherd would just say, that's okay. Hey, you're all, you're, all, you're all in Christ. Because when we talk about sleep, that's a believer being brought to death. We know that when a believer dies, even if God brings him unto death, what happens? That believer awakes in the presence of God, which is a sweet thing. But I don't think you want to challenge God. Well, you can go ahead and take me to death so I can w- awake in your presence. I'm going to sin unto death, but I know that I'll be with you. That's not a wise choice. Nor, again, would any believer actually make that. Would they say that? Paul is saying, look, I don't want you going unto death. I don't want you sick, weak, because you think somehow that as true believers, God won't discipline you. He will. The bigger picture here is also then for those around us. We are to be a holy church, as Israel was supposed to be a holy nation. We're called. First Peter tells us that. We enter into that calling of Israel. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to look like God, be holy like he is. Your marriages matter. Your parenting matters. What you watch on the internet matters. What you say at work matters. How you treat each other relationally matters. Somehow becoming a Christian doesn't erase the weightiness of obedience and holiness because that's how we picture our God. And it's when we, when we really dishonor our communion with him through unholiness, God brings his discipline. So we need to comprehend God's purpose. So he certainly judged Old Testament Israel. You still might be wondering, okay, and we've been talking about it. I know we're kind of putting these things together, but now we come to the actual verse, verse 6, which says, okay, this is for you. If you've doubted it all along, wondering what I'm talking about with baptism and, and these things going on, we'll look at verse 6. Now, these things happened, by implication, to them. These things happened as examples for us. That's some random thing that happens in the Old Testament. Oh, wow, bad news that God treated them that way. God doesn't treat us that way. These are examples for us. And here's why. So that we would not crave evil things as they also Crave. There's a direct moral lesson to be drawn for God's people. Don't crave evil things. If you do, God will bring his discipline. So comprehend God's purposes. One, God's treatment of Israel is an example for us. And what kind of example? This is important. I'm going to take a minute here as well. The word here is, is uh, tipos, which is type. Now, there are various kinds of types in Scripture. There's some very specific ones, Right? So a type used in its most technical sense is when there's something in the Old Testament that directly prefigures Christ. For example, in the book of Numbers, when the people are bitten by the serpents, Moses crafts a bronze serpent, puts it up on a, on a stake, and the people are to look at that. In John chapter 3, we find that that is a type of pointing head directly to Christ. Christ fulfills that type. There are some types in the Old Testament like that. All of them are revealed to us that we need to know, I guess, in the new. This is a type. Paul's not using it in as technical a sense here. And it's important for us to understand that. The, the, the vast majority of way that type is used is not a direct, okay, everything that happened to the type, Christ fulfills. You get in trouble there, because all of a sudden everything Israel did, Christ has to do. Well, that's going to be a problem, because we already see here that Israel sinned. So you can't take it that far, so you've got to be really careful with your types. You've got people dance around these things, but they do take it. Some, many commentators take this word type here. No, Israel is exactly everything that happens to Israel, Jesus fulfills or does. But that's not the strength of this type. You can't define the word technically when it's in a context that isn't like that. Clearly, everything happening to Israel isn't recapitulated, redone by Christ. So this is a general type. That is a general example, and it's a moral example. And much of the Old Testament events are not somehow special pictures of things that Jesus will do. They are examples of attitudes and actions that we should either share or not. That's the vast majority of typology, as it were, of this kind of type from one to the other. Examples for us and moral examples. I mean, these days, people are interpreting the Old Testament. You can't take moral examples because that would be over-moralizing the Old Testament. Tell Paul that. Because he's saying, this example is for you, what happened to them, so that you will stop being immoral, that you will stop craving evil things. So, let's, so that first point really is, and it's, you can just write it in under God's treatment of Israel as an example for us, Israel is not only an example, right? Because now what's being said is, look, what they did doesn't really matter, it's just the picture of what it meant and so we take that picture, that type, and we move it in the New Testament. Christ fulfills it all, so we don't need really to worry about whether that was real or not. Unless you think I am taking that too far, I mean, I'm doing some doctoral work uh, at one of the more conservative seminaries in the nation, Midwestern Baptist, run by a super conservative guy. And I am reading, I'm being asked to read things, probably not my professor so much at this point, but I'm being asked to read things that are commended by my professors, by men who believe that the things that happened in the Old Testament were generally just types, just examples. N.T. Wright does not believe that Daniel exists. So he doesn't just have a problem with justification, if you're familiar with any of that. He doesn't believe that there was a real Daniel. He doesn't believe that many, maybe most of the things that happened in the Old Testament actually happened. And yet he is held up as a poster boy by a vast majority of modern evangelical theologians who say, hey, he gets it right about salvation, about who Jesus is. He does not. He's just one. 
it's not, it's not, the, not yet back to the classic old school liberalism, which you might have heard about, you know, all the dead German guys who you know, said, look, Jesus Project. It's moving its way back that direction through evangelical circles, where all of a sudden, hey, it doesn't really matter if these things happen. Just pictures of things that went on, a, an overall historical, a redemptive historical narrative, but it's a theological narrative, not a real one. Not, not, not everybody believes that. Not all my professors hold to that. But it is moving that way, and you need to know that. Because the people you read are often sucking from that well, and they're misunderstanding what example is. Now, it's an example of a real historical narrative of things that really happened to real people that needed to happen to them really actually in history so that God would fulfill his promises to his people and bring about a Messiah. It's essential that they're real, but we may also use them as examples for us. They're, all, they're never less than examples, right? And yet, always more. So for us, Paul says, these are examples. And by the way, so second part of this, if you just want to write a note under here, these are obvious examples, not hidden meanings. So often, now this is what's happening in Scripture. So they say, well, the, the way that Paul shapes this narrative, there's an exodus, uh, a second exodus, and that, that mirrors the first exodus, and so we understand the passage on the basis of the movement in the text that's recapitulating what happened in the Old Testament. You guys, I'm not really sure about all that. Some of that, I think, could maybe be true, there's, but that's not the theological picture or the, the moral picture that we are to draw. What Paul is teaching has to do with a very basic lesson. Again, it has to do with don't crave evil things. It has to do with don't follow their example. And the vast majority of, old, of New Testament writers use Old Testament events in this way. They did this, don't do this. They did this, do this. God did this with them, he'll do this with you. We don't have to be like Augustine and a lot, of the, a lot of the early church fathers. Well, the movement of Israel into the desert was really like the popes as they've moved the church into uh, a wilderness of theology. It's nothing to do with that. And you, you end up in serious trouble when you start doing all that. But yes, I'm telling you, people are moving back. Now, our modern evangelicalism is now moving back to that kind of interpretation. Like that's the better interpretation, actually, because we've taken too many moral lessons. We've taken this too seriously. I don't think so. Paul takes it pretty seriously. So obvious examples, not hidden meanings. And two, God's treatment of Israel is meant to change your behavior. That's the issue. That's some feel, oh, look, God did that to Israel, and woo, you know, it's some bigger theological point there. There, there are theological points. Theological point number one, don't crave evil things. Stop craving evil things, and instead, love and serve Jesus. Back in your text, what does he say? These things happened as examples for us so that we could see the spiritual movement of Israel into the desert as the church moving into a time of apostasy. No. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. The issue is their heart and their responses to God. He says, look, that was evidenced by their actions you need to stop craving evil things. You need to not start if you aren't. So obvious examples and examples that were meant for us to change. We must, as believers, look at our truths in Old and New Testaments and we are to look at them in light of how we will change. So as we consider all of this, as, as before we move into these examples, we're only gonna get into one of them, but we draw the proper moral lesson, which is not some kind of legalistic self-righteousness. See, a lot of churches, or some, not so many these days, I mean, there's not even a lot of independent fundamental churches that are very prominent today. That is those that kind of take a, a set of rules and regulations that they invent, stack it on top of the church, demand that the church obey that, and say, that's holiness. See, we're, we're, we're doing this. No, that has nothing to do with holiness. It's legalistic self-righteousness for the purpose of elevating your own abilities. A true love of Jesus leads to lack of bitterness of the heart, a forgiveness of people because we were not revengeful towards them. A true love of Christ which says, I obey you because you're worthy and I wouldn't want anything to taint my relationship with you. I'm not gonna, you know, if, man, as long as I filled out that list of external regulations, my hair wasn't like this and I didn't smoke that, then everything is fine. No, that's not holiness and that's not how the church goes forward. But today, holiness has been abandoned altogether. No legalistic self-righteousness, no holiness. We can't be... Without either, you have to have true holiness and you have to set aside legalistic self-righteousness or pure abandoning yourself to evil. 
So as we consider Israel's specific sin from verse 6, the overall question I would be asking you is this, what evil things do you crave? Again, this is for the church. What evil things do you as a believer, not what do unbelievers crave, what do you crave? What things that are opposed to God? How about a desire for revenge? You're trying to get back at somebody? How about a desire to be bitter? You're going to hold up you know, someone's sin against you and be bitter against them? How about a desire to gossip? A desire to express your anger? A desire to cut people out of your relationships? Those are evil desires. Sometimes immediately go to media and social media. There's plenty of evil. We'll talk about that. But the evils we commit more generally tend to be these internal ones of hatred and bitterness and anger and gossip and, 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 and relational sins, harming our wives and harming our children, harming our husbands. Because what evil things do you crave? What, what has come up above the things of God? It starts with this. Paul is laying out this warning to his Christian audience. And so I lay it out to you. I can do no less. Watch out because Israel craved evil things and we're going to see what happens. We want to be sure that we are working our way. So lest they should just then have this general principle and most of the Corinthians going, I don't crave evil things. I'm good, as some of you might do today. Yeah, no. I mean, I showed up today and I'm pretty righteous and I think I've got this category and that taken care of. Again, the Lord is gracious. Many of you pursuing joyous holiness. That's a wonderful thing. I'm not saying you don't do that. But I'm saying it's really easy for you to pass over the sin that you're committing and the person sitting next to you are like, I know what their evil desire is. I know what they're doing wrong. I know what they haven't fixed instead of your own, right? So I want to be careful. So now Paul uses specific examples. So this is C. We'll just get through one of them. Avoid Israel's sin. So comprehend, beware of God's judgment. Comprehend God's purposes. What is he trying to accomplish? And then avoid Israel's sin. And so he starts with a very specific sin that hits the Corinthians right between the eyes. Paul holds no punches. Pulls no punches. He goes right at the very issue that he's been dealing with in their idolatrous meals. And he says this, do not be idolatrous. By the way, notice a direct command drawn from a narrative example. This can be done. Right? You gotta be careful. But it's a direct command, a direct moral command drawn from a narrative example of something that Israel did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. It's interesting, he said, it was, with most of them, he was displeased. I wonder if each of the sums, <laughs> each of the sins that happened, not all the same people did them. It adds up to most of Israel. Some of them were idolaters, not all of them. Some of them, as it is written. And then he gives, this is the only place in, this, in these four examples that he gives that he directly quotes a line of scripture. I think it's purposeful, of course. He's grounding this particular exhortation, really all of them, in historical narrative. Now, he's already done that by talking about the sea and Moses and the cloud. Right, they, already, they know what he's talking about. Old Testament, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. He's talking about those things. Now he gets specific and he quotes a particular line. He says, here's how the people demonstrated their idolatry is that they sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. Do you think he chose that example randomly? What had he just what has he just been intimating and will bring directly to bear at the end of chapter 10 about what the Corinthians were doing? They were going back into the temples and they were what? Eating and drinking. Bam. I mean, right between the eyes. Idolaters? Oh, that wouldn't be me. We're not doing... Eat and drink. We are eating and drinking before foreign idols. Well, let's go back and look at the narrative to see what Paul is... He, or he's quoting some verses, but... Obviously, they're going to be thinking of the bigger story in light of that. So here it is, Numbers, chapter 25. Excuse me, Exodus, a little before. Exodus 32. So yeah, I can hear those. Pace. If you stayed in Numbers. But. So Exodus 32, and we, again, we know the narrative, but it's instructive to look at it. So this is, of course, when they've gone to the mountain. God has taken them through the Red Sea. He has judged Egypt, destroyed that nation through the plagues, and then... Moses goes up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 32, not Genesis, can't handle my own Bible, Exodus 32 verse 6, 32, 6, he says this, so the next day, 
Uh, we're jumping too early. Let's go verse 1. <laughs> 32 verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Remember, he's been up there 40 days. Or he's at some portion of this. The people assembled around about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 40 days. He's gone. They're like, it's over. Moses is gone. He's up on the mountain. There's this cloud up there. We don't know what to do, so we want a God. This is the evil desire, the craving to what? To have a God that they can see and touch and feel. A God like the other nations. We want someone to lead us. This Moses, our picture, the one we're identified with in the cloud and in the sea, He's gone. So we need a visible representative, and this is how man is driven. They want to have something to worship that's tangible, something that brings them an initial, immediate pleasure. Well, this is what they want. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. All the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. Now, this rats Aaron out, because when Moses comes down later off the mountain, He says, what have you done? He says, well, we tossed all of the gold into the pot, and what happened? Out came this calf. No way. He shaped it. He takes a tool. It's like he takes it into the workshop. Aaron crafts this thing, carefully creating a calf. Then it seems like the people grab it, the leaders, and they said, the people say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Immediate idolatry, 40 days. Direct, idol-worshiping style idolatry after God has just delivered them, cared for them, provided for them, and identified himself with them. Because this is the heart of men if it isn't checked by the power of God and by purposeful taking our bodies and making them slaves. Well, it says the next day then. Oh, so now Aaron saw this. So he's like, whoa, the people bought it. Great. All right? He built an altar before it. Aaron, what are you thinking? I mean, Aaron, who helped Moses lead the people out, Moses specifically asked for some help, and Aaron was going to provide it, and now he's providing this kind of help. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What do you do when you're having religious ceremonies? You eat, you have a festival. That's what they did. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. Now, notice he's going to transition here. So you have this direct, rampant idolatry, worshiping this calf in the eating of a meal. And then in rising up, it says to play. And I think this will lead us to our next sin, sin of immorality. He's going to use another example. But almost certainly when it says they rose up to play, the word there just means the play of a child, but not innocent, childlike play. It means out of control play, just total, total, giving yourself over to play. That's what children do. They just play. And essentially, they're out of control. You have to call them back. They'll run out into the street. They'll bounce themselves off the trampoline. They'll, you know, they'll do any of these things. So they're, they're out of control. The idea is unrestrained. Children just play. Well, that's the picture of what the people did in their rampant idolatry. They then let their emotions go. Their wills are, are set aside, and they rampantly pursue whatever pleasure is around. Dancing, feasting. Almost certainly, this includes acts of sexual immorality. The word itself... Is when it's translated in the Old Testament, it's a Greek word uh, in, when Paul talks about when he translates it in the New. But the word is, is used as to caress one's wife. All right, that is a place where it's used. I do think it has, in this case, sexual overtones. And Paul uses it on purpose because there were also sexual overtones of the worship in Corinth. Has not Paul already told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, stop consorting with prostitutes, It is clear that that was going on in Corinth, almost certainly as a result of the religious worship, saying this is what happens. You go to the feasts. You say, oh, there's no real gods. We don't believe in those real gods. We're just going to, you know, we believe in the one true God. We're just going to eat the food. And then you end up what? With the prostitutes. You end up in the whole religious system. This idolatry will destroy you. The people, this happened to Israel. That's exactly what they did. They knew who the real God was. They had, had communion with him. And yet they abandoned that for this idolatry and they walked away into sin, ultimately into immorality. Now, before we get too hard on the Israelites, I mean, 40, 40 days that Moses is gone. I mean, if, if, we, if we want to apply this to ourselves, I mean, how quickly do we hear the truths of God's word or consider who God is and then immediately turn to our own idolatry? I mean, you walk out of a worship service this morning and you yell at your wife. I mean, 
that's idolatry. You have allowed anger to rise up in your heart and you have pursued your own idolatry. You've sinned to get something, the pleasure that you want by, 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 by communicating to your wife your displeasure, what she hasn't done. I mean, it didn't take you 40 days. It took you 40 seconds. You yelled at your kids. Kids immediately go home and talk back to your parents or refuse to do what they say. Now, I'm not saying everything rises to the same level of rising up into a sexual orgy. I'm not saying that. I am saying that idolatry is idolatry and that we have to be careful that we're not pushing this off on everybody else and not realizing that we ourselves, in any way we sin, have in some way, that's an idol worships. An idol is what you'll sin to get, sin because you don't have, or sin to keep because you have to raise it to the level of being willing to disobey the God whom you love. And so in that sense, it becomes idolatry to you guys. So I have to keep laying this out. We've been talking about idolatry a lot. It's painful. It's not just painful for you, it's painful for me. There's lots of things the Lord has to work in my own heart, but I can't hold back these truths from you. And so since we're in the text and we're working our way through here, I, this is, you know, these evil things we're craving comes out in this idolatry, things that we place above God in our pursuit of pleasure. Comfort, success, acceptance, recognition, family stuff, religious activity, information. Some of you spend hours and hours and hours on YouTube going over and over the various thing you like or the kind of information. Maybe it's political. Maybe it's video games. You not only waste time, but that becomes you don't do the things that you ought to do. You get totally consumed with that. It's risen to a level of an idol for you. The question would be, what is it? The pillar commentary says this. Modern people do not tend to give idols any more credence than most of the Corinthians did. This does not exempt them or us from the dangers of behaving in idolatrous ways. We are not innocent simply because we ourselves would not conceive our relationship to these other things in our society that fascinate us and compete for our loyalties and our priorities as idolatry. That's why I want you to go home and consider. You think, I'm, I'm, I, no, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in other gods, so I can't be committing idolatry. Yes, you can. Well, I don't view my relationship to that as idolatry. Maybe you should. See what I mean? That's, and you're going to need to work through that. And so do I. So that we might not dishonor our God and come underneath his displeasure because we are pretending, or we are actually loving and serving him, but we're pretending that something we're doing isn't an idolatrous practice. As we do this then, and, and please understand, that there is the good news of forgiveness in Christ and overcoming our idolatry. But I want to be careful that I don't, we're not just always jumping quick, hey, all right, that might be true, but let's look at you know, the positive things, let's do this and that. Paul is focusing on the warning. So I need to focus on the warning for these next couple of weeks. You need to analyze carefully, biblically, straining your desires and thoughts through the principles of Scripture to see what comes out that's an evil craving. And then change it so that we might, as a church, more carefully reflect the holiness of our God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For, the, for this truth of Scripture, thank you for the Apostle Paul and inspiring him to write these words as a faithful shepherd that we, too, would take these warnings, that we would not be idolaters as some of the Israelites were, that we would not take for granted our blessings of having communion with you by adulterating ourselves at the, at the foot of worldly idols in any form. Father, I, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you that, that for so many of them, their desires to pursue you, to love you, to set aside idols, and I pray that you would give them grace to do so. But Father, I ask also that you would help them, give them discernment, help them do the hard work necessary to finally, perhaps for some, abandon idols that have been dominating their lives for years, to stop making excuses. Father, that they would not come underneath your, your disciplining hand and that they would be able to, to reflect your holiness. In your precious name, amen.